Our scripture reading this morning is from 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 1 through 24. Please stand, if you're able, as we read from the New Testament. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the church of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter, so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door of effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace, that he may return to me, for I am expecting him with the brothers. Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers, but it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has opportunity. Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Now I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to such as these, and to every fellow worker and laborer. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus, because they have made up for your absence, for they refreshed my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such people. The churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Prissa, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. Let's pray as we come to this study in Corinthians. Lord, your word abides and our footsteps guides who its truth believes, light and joy receives. Lord, we know that in the tradition of the church, in the history of the church, men and women have looked to you through your word that you would guide them. They have looked to your spirit that you would open their eyes to its truth. And you have looked to us to depend upon you as we hang upon it, in Christ's name, amen. Perhaps you remember the challenge of going into a church service for the first time. 
Who knows, perhaps this is your first challenging time. If so, good luck. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Screwtape Letters, has one senior devil remind his nephew that the church in eternity is a fearsome thing for the devils. Terrible, he says, as an army with banners. But the local church is something that can be made to look quite ridiculous without very much effort at all. I'm going to read to you a few uh, sentences from the Screwtape Letters. This is Screwtape speaking. When he goes inside, the patient sees the local grocer with rather an oily expression on his face, bustling up to offer him one shiny little book containing a liturgy, which neither of them understands, and one shabby little book containing corrupt texts of a number of religious lyrics, mostly bad and in very small print. When he gets to his pew and looks round him, he sees just that selection of his neighbors whom he has hitherto avoided. You want to lean pretty heavily on these neighbors. Make his mind flit to and fro between an expression like the body of Christ and the actual faces in the pew. At his present stage, you see, he has an idea of Christians in his mind, which he supposes to be spiritual, but which is in fact largely pictorial. His mind is full of togas and sandals and armor and bare legs. And the mere fact that the people in the church wear modern clothes is a real, though of course an unconscious, difficulty to him. Never let it come to the surface. Never let him ask what he expected them to look like. Keep everything hazy in his mind now, and you will have all eternity wherein to amuse yourself by producing in him the peculiar kind of clarity which hell affords. If you have ever wondered how people can be so irritating to you on Sunday mornings, people fidgeting with their phones, chatting with their children, getting up to go somewhere, whatever it is that irritates you so about other people, well now at least you know some of the reason. It's a temptation. Yet those very same things, the quirks and the foibles of regular people worshipping alongside each other, the very humanity of humanity in worship points to our value. These are the people, these are the people that the Bible says in Ephesians, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. My guess is if you and I were to write a book or a letter like this one, that we wouldn't finish it as Paul does with chapter 16. After all, he has just brought us last week to the heights of wonder in describing the fact of the resurrection of Jesus and of our resurrection one day in him. Why then, you might ask, does Paul end with this anticlimactic shopping list of various chores to be done and plans to be made and people to be thanked? It rather takes the bloom off the rose. But in a way, it fits. If Christ is not raised then the church has no future. And if the church has no future, well then, individuals are of no particular significance, for they too will be lost and forgotten. But if we will all be raised with Christ, then these very people whom Christ has chosen, with all of their complications, are of immense value. And their stories of becoming ever slowly like Jesus are of absolute significance. 
So I think it is fitting that this letter, which is perhaps Paul's major examination of the church in the New Testament, is the way that Paul ends with people. And with, I would suggest, three aspects of them. Please turn to our passage as Anne has read it to us from 1 Corinthians 16. I want to offer you three thoughts. The first is this, that what we're presented with here are people who, like us, are the church of Jesus. Verses 1 through 4. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. What's Paul talking about? Well, for the first time, he's not talking about the Corinthians, it seems. He's talking about the collection of money that he's been organizing among the churches of Asia Minor and Macedonia and Greece during his third missionary journey for the relief of the church in Jerusalem. And the reason for this collection is uh, forgotten to us now, but it was one of the great ecological crises of the first century, a multi-year famine which began in the fourth year of the reign of the Emperor Claudius, round about the year 44. And Paul now is probably writing his letter to the Corinthians in AD 53, which means that the famine has been going on for nine years already. It was so significant an event that not only did people write about this long after the fact, the venerable but not particularly memorable Bishop Bede mentions it in his history 700 years later. And as you may know, in Acts chapter 11, it was announced before it had ever happened by the prophets at Antioch. Grain was scarce and thus expensive. People needed money just to eat and survive. Now, Paul, who knew that there had been a long-standing tension between the Jewish Christians of Jerusalem and the Gentile Christians of Greece and Asia Minor, saw in this collection of money an opportunity, a God-given opportunity, to heal the breach. And you can read about that in 2 Corinthians. But this is what he says. Now, concerning the collection for the saints, he tells them, Notice how he puts that. It's precisely the same language that he began the letter with when he wrote, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. So Paul is taking up a collection for the saints for the self-absorbed Corinthians, perhaps this was a necessary lesson. For us, too, it is a lesson that the saints, that the church is broader than we are. And who were the saints in Paul's mind? They were Jewish, Gentile, Judean, Greek, North African, Italians. They were the saints together. They were all the people who belonged to Christ, not just those in Jerusalem. Paul had found a way to renew the covenant between very different Christians after a time of crisis through a practical gift, through the gift of money. I was uh, sitting outside Perk Coffee Shop the other day having coffee with a good friend, and uh, as happens, uh, a total stranger pipes up in the middle of our conversation and says uh, something kiddingly rude to me because he was also a British transplant. Where are you from, I said to him. Middlesbrough, he said. Where are you from, he asked. Watford, huh, he said. 
It was his way of renewing the covenant with me, <laughs> offering me the closest thing to a British hug, which of course we don't do. How much more so then, right, should we, the Church of Jesus, be looking for ways to renew our covenant with each other after a year of being apart? I think this is significant. If we were to take a page out of Paul's book, we will see that words are cheap. It's actions that often speak loudest and often actions that cost us to the benefit of the other person. Perhaps some unexpected gift from an unexpected source. Don't just think good thoughts at the people you know here, but as the Lord brings them to mind or you pass by them, write them an encouraging note, give them a gift, do like the youth are doing through love in action on countless occasions. Uh, I understand they're providing childcare for an evening soon. Or do something costly for you, but uh, precious for others. You might take... Uh, the uh, pastor's adorable uh, puppy for the weekend. <laughs> or for longer. <laughs> Going cheap. <laughs> but it is, isn't it? It's offering to somebody that gift that's reminding them practically we are the church together. Second, the people who do the work of the Lord, verses 5 to 12. What I appreciate about these descriptions is that they are so candid, aren't they, about flesh and blood people who Paul knew. What does it mean for Paul to do the work of the Lord? Well, notice it's a remarkably down-to-earth approach that he has. You remember his encouragement from 1 Corinthians 10, and I think this is probably borrowed from Solomon in Ecclesiastes 9. Whatever your hand finds to do, do all to the glory of God. There's a famous story about the Queen's late husband, Prince Philip, one of the uh, many stories that showed that he doesn't suffer fools gladly. Apparently some simpering official greeted him after a long flight someplace, and uh, as he was getting off the plane, the official said to him, and how was your flight, sir? There was a pause as the prince thought and then said to him, have you ever flown? Yes, sir, often. He said, well, it was like that. It's striking, isn't it? When you come to the New Testament, there's none of the celebrity or hierarchy, certainly no royalty that we might expect those who are senior in the faith to insist on. What is it that matters to Paul? What kind of an example will he show them? Well, look at verse 7. This is his example. Paul isn't just going to cruise through town like some rock star when he visits Corinth again. He's no guru for whom you have to make an appointment. And he will not see them, you notice, in passing. No, rather because seeing them matters to him, he'll wait until he has a good opportunity. I found that striking. There were no little people in Paul's directory. He cared for people and gave no thought to any advantage or privilege he may have been given. Isn't that how we are to treat one another in our overcommitted lives? It is significant that we can learn from somebody 2,000 years ago about how they dealt with their social appointments, that he thought spending significant time was necessary. I was struck in a similar way by verse 9. Paul says, I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has opened to me, 
and there are many adversaries. Again, I think this is important for the Corinthians who tended to over-spiritualize everything. Paul is showing them how God is leading them. God is leading him. No angel has told him what to do. There's no indication that he's had a vision that tells him that he should stay in Ephesus. No, the only thing he knows is that Christ has commissioned him to take the gospel to the Gentiles and to their kings. So he sees here an opportunity present itself. He trusts in a providing sovereign God and he takes the opportunity. I wonder why it is that we hang back from faith and risk and adventure for Christ. The way, you know, that all of us do. We hang back from being sold out for Christ. Isn't it often because we are waiting for that perfectly right moment to talk to that member of our family who doesn't want to hear us about Christianity? Or we wait for the assurance of success when we're going to risk something in perhaps a a gift or a uh, risky conversation with someone. Or for the guarantee that this won't cost us much, or at least not for too long, when it comes to thinking about investing in some needy person. What's the confirmation for Paul that this is probably a wide open door from God? Well, it's interesting, isn't it? Verse 9, and there are many adversaries. Resistance, you see, for Paul was often a sign that he was barking up the right tree. And if that is the way the apostle is going to do the Lord's work in his own life, how will he see others treated who are also called to do the work of the Lord? Well, notice here, what is of concern to Paul about Timothy's work for the Lord in verses 10 through 11? Frankly, he seems to be concerned about how the Corinthians are going to treat Timothy. We tend to think of Timothy, this is something of a caricature, I think it's not necessarily true to scripture. We think of him as being a a timid individual who was scared of his own shadow. But it's striking, recently scholars have been looking at the language here in this chapter and they reckon they have misread this. Although naturally timid, the gift that that God had given Timothy was a certain fearlessness. That's the original meaning here of a word in verse 10. A fearlessness about the gospel and its requirements upon believers in a way perhaps that the Corinthians didn't care for. Whatever the cause, Paul notice encourages them, verse 11, help him on his way in peace. And again, as we deal with one another, practically for us, this is one of the odd things about church life together, isn't it? Some, like elders or deacons, are given a responsibility for the care of the flock, which requires them an authority, to exercise an authority, to do God's work. And it's difficult for us to process that in a democratic society. It's an issue not so much of authority, but of pastoral care. Hebrews 13 says, obey your leaders and submit to them for they're keeping watch over your souls. So that's concerning to Paul. He wants them to treat Timothy well because Timothy is doing the Lord's work. So the Corinthians work is to respond to Timothy's work in a way that doesn't make the Lord's work among them any more difficult than it already is. 
And then there are those whose work is needed, but for whatever reason, they cannot come to join in the work that needs to be done. Again, people have cast doubt here over Apollos' faith or his maturity in deciding that it was best to come. It's possible to see all kinds of shadows here that are not necessarily so. It's worth remembering from chapter 1 that the last time Apollos had gotten involved or was pulled into something, he was cast by some as Paul's rival or even the rival of Christ himself. So it may be that there is some wisdom in Apollos' reluctance to return to Corinth despite Paul's encouragement. We don't know. All that we are meant to see here, I think, is Paul's grace to Apollos in allowing God to lead him as he will. He will come, he says, when he has opportunity. So some are called to do God's work because there is an opportunity to do so. Some are called to do God's work and they will need our cooperation as they do so. And others are not called presently to serve and need our grace in not doing so. For us, the likelihood as this year is coming to an end is that you will feel disconnected, unsure about what you're called to do at Stony Point, how you are to re-engage, how you're to take up the Lord's work here again. My encouragement to you is that you would simply take a leaf out of Paul's book and from his encouragement to do whatever your hand finds to do to give glory to God. In the end, the work of God comes down to where you are, and it comes down simply to jobs that need doing and to people who need caring for. You don't need commands from the staff or from the pastors or from the elders to know what to do quite often. It is a matter of simply seeing an opportunity to care for other people. No matter how grand or menial or for how short a time or long a time as it is, either here at church or with your neighbour, we're told to look out for these opportunities because it's the Lord who will give them to us. So the call here is not just to apostles and to the bigwigs. It's to the people who are doing the work of the Lord as God gives them opportunity. And finally, here in verses 13 through 24, this, really this last section here, the people who love one another for Jesus' sake. In closing, I want to read to you from another significant and uh, pretty old letter. You were all distinguished by humility and were in no respect puffed up with pride, but yielded obedience rather than extorted it and were more willing to give than to receive. Every kind of faction and schism was abominable in your sight. You mourned over the transgressions of your neighbours, their deficiencies you deemed your own. You never grudged any act of kindness, being ready to do every good work, adorned by a thoroughly virtuous and religious life. You did all things in the fear of God. Now what's lovely about those words is that they were written to the church at Corinth, 50 to maybe 75 years after Paul wrote 1 Corinthians. Why is that important? It's important because not only did the Corinthian church survive when other perhaps larger churches like the church at Ephesus did not, it thrived because it actually took seriously 
the words that Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians and in 2 Corinthians. And deliberately here, the author is a man called Clement. He's saying, you did it. You somehow learned humility. You somehow, by God's grace, learned obedience. You grew to be more willing to give than to receive. It's encouraging, isn't it? Because it is a proof that even when we look in the mirror and we are not pleased, perhaps, by what we see, it is a proof to a church like ours that sometimes, by the grace of God, astonishingly, the gospel can change anyone, anywhere. Even us. Even me. So these final verses in the letter are often regarded as if the movie has finished and Paul is just rolling the credits. Various thank yous and greetings and final reminders. But I want to suggest to you that it's the names here that are every bit as important as every other part of the message of 1 Corinthians as Paul has written it. Why? Well, it's because the names in this book, in the light of resurrection, are of infinite value. Now listen to these names. Crispus, Gaius, Timothy, Apollos, Cephas, Barnabas, Stephanus, Fortunatus, Achaicus, Achilla, Prisca. You know, it's astonishing when you think about it. One day you will put a face to those names. And they are names that tell the story, the history of the story of the church in Corinth through at least one famine and two major imperial persecutions. They're just names to us, but the church at Corinth, those names were precious in Christ. Those names tell us something, don't they, that Paul should remember them. They tell us something about the nature of the church. It was his teaching, but it wasn't just his teaching. It was obedience to apostolic authority and the way of the cross, but it wasn't just that. Paul's church was, by his example, relational because of the gospel. For all of their faith, they took opportunity to love one another. So in closing, I wonder if this letter doesn't leave us with this challenge. We live in a culture, including a Christian subculture of a Western affluent superculture, which tells us that the person that you need to look out for is yourself. And that's no different for you. It would say, if you are a Christian and you attend a local church, what is a local church? It's a place, perhaps pretty much like the grocery store or the country club or the uh, health club, where you pay your subscription, you receive your service until it becomes inconvenient to do so and you move on. I wonder, are we the kind of church that Paul hoped that churches like ours would become? What do the names tell us here? Well, the names suggest relationship. And the relationship over time in a church that endured suggests commitment, long-standing commitment to each other. And the commitment to each other in costly ways suggests they knew that Christ had loved his church and given himself up for her, for all of the names. You know, Stony Point is just like that. If you, I was struck by this. If you look at our website and look at the Our Story section that Pastor Alan Lee put together a few years ago. Our history is made up of names. 
our community life together, our faith, for what it's worth, is made up of names. The names of the people that God has sent us. The names of the people who come through here in food pantry. The names of the people that we meet through love in action. The names of the ones who have been given to us as part of our community of faith. And the good news is that we're on course, hopefully, to return to normalcy this year. At the end of the summer, our hope is to return to normal operation in September. And I would say to you, I think in the light of what Paul says here, you don't have to be dawn to invite some girlfriends over for coffee. You don't have to be Jenny to serve in children's ministry. You don't have to be Zach to invest in our youth Sunday school. You don't have to be Michael to serve with our mission teams. You don't have to be Kurt to be faithful in serving your community group. Simply look for the opportunities that God is giving you. Why do it? Because Christ loved the church. Because Christ loves the names. And he has given himself up for her, for the names. Because God's giving you a wide open door to love people and to reach out to our neighbours with the gospel. You know, when you see things in these personal terms, not just simply the cloud of people, but when you understand that God has called individuals and has called you to love individuals, perhaps to just love one individual, how significant that is. You know, one of the things that made most impact on me when I was in seminary was a man who was probably the most promising of all our graduating class as a preacher, and lots of churches wanted him. But what he felt committed to, he and his wife, was to care for one person whom he'd come across in counseling in his ministry. All the indications we have is that although the Corinthians were tested, though they went through many a crisis, the Lord was faithful and they grew to be the church that Paul had in love hoped that they would be, as we will be. Do you hope for that? Do you expect that? Do you see that? You know, it's hilarious to me. It's hard to imagine the Corinthians as being the wise, mature, grandfatherly church that teaches puppies like us what we should be. But that's exactly what they eventually became because of the gospel. So the people who are with us doing the work of Christ in love, sounds a bit like mums, doesn't it? We are the church together who do the work of the Lord and who love one another for Jesus' sake. Let's pray. Lord, we praise you for your provision and that you haven't given us simply things for ourselves. You have given us people, people to love in telling them about Christ. People we are to love because they are in Christ and we have an opportunity to encourage them or to serve them or to do something costly for them. People we are to love who in their grief after this year of loss need someone to come alongside and simply sit with them. Lord, you are our sustainer. You are our only hope. You are the one to which we cling. Lord Jesus, you are the vine and we are but the branches. And if we disconnect from you, then we simply become something 
unmoving and useless. Lord, we desire to be about your work with the names that you have given us. May we follow the Corinthians, we pray in this. In Christ's name, amen.